this morning we are uh, continuing in through uh, the Old Testament. Uh, if you were with us last week, uh, you will hopefully remember where we ended. Uh, as, as we have gone through this series in the Old Testament, there have been different kind of themes that we have worked through. And we talked a while back about motifs and, uh, and the themes and kind of how we've walked through those. One of the things that I hope you will see from last week to this week uh, is the theme. I don't know about, well, it says kind of sound weird to say, I hope you see this theme. The theme is idolatry. Uh, last week, we ended talking about idolatry. I talked about uh, an example that I used years ago, but an example I think that is still very uh, applicable today, dealing with provision, protection, and power. And I talked about these words and how they relate to the temptation of Jesus and kind of walked through those things. And then I made the statement to you that anytime uh, that we look or that I look outside of God for provision, protection, or power, that I have made that thing an idol. Today's story that we're going to read in 1 Kings directly deals with this statement. Uh, we are going to read stories, two stories in particular, that are not going to be very good examples of how not to live this. And so we're going to get to the end. These are, are stories that probably many of you uh, aren't familiar with. They're kind of a, a little bit of stranger stories. But the, the question I want you to kind of be asking and thinking about as we enter into these stories is the question of what do I, when, when we define idolatry, I think one of the best ways to define it and for us to understand, because we're, we're gonna talk about golden calves, we're gonna look at some of that today. But I know for a lot of us, we think like, well, I don't struggle with idolatry uh, because I don't, I don't have a graven image. Uh, there's nothing that I, I worship that's a false God. I don't believe that's true. I believe the better question that we ask is, what do I put between my relationship with God? What is the thing that, that, that gets in between me and God? And that thing is, is what we call an idol. And there's all kinds of things we put there. And one of the things I didn't say last week that I want you to think about, because it's a very true statement, is the things sometimes we put between us and God, they're, they're not always bad things. Sometimes those are good things. But when we have been consumed by them, or that's what, what takes our thoughts away from God, those things become idols to us. And so just because there's something between us and God doesn't mean it's a bad thing. Now, there's plenty of bad things, but it can also be good things. They can be things that are necessary to our lives. Our families are very, very important to us, but our family can become an idol. Uh, that doesn't make family bad. I don't think y'all ever would think I would say that, but we have to be careful of how we kind of walk that line and, and where we keep that, that structure in our lives. And so that's what we're gonna talk about today uh, and use a story that's kind of a, a different story or two stories in particular out of 1 Kings chapter 12. So if you wanna go ahead and start turning there, let me give you a little bit of um, kind of statement of, of where we are, how we got from last week, part of this series, or part of these times in the falls when we go through the Old Testament, I have to spend quite a bit of time getting up, bridging the gap from where we were last week to where we are this week. And so last week, if you remember, David united the kingdom. The people came to him and said, hey, we're all, we're all the people of God. Why don't you bring us? And so David moves the kingdom to Jerusalem, to the city of David. That's why it's called the city of David. He moves them there. David rules. He does uh, a, a good job. Uh, we know the stories of David. We know that David was not perfect. But as a king, uh, he was, as the Bible tells us, a man after God's own heart. 
uh, but that doesn't mean he wasn't without his flaws. David has a son, Solomon, speaking of flaws, has a, Solomon with, or has a son, Solomon, with Bathsheba. He follows him as king. Solomon then passes away. That gets us to 1 Kings chapter 11. The very end of chapter 11, verse 43, tells us Solomon rested. That means he passed away. They laid him to rest with his ancestors and was buried in the city of his father, David. His son, Rehoboam, became king in his place. So we have moved from last week, the beginning of David's reign, all the way the 40 years, or really the 33 and a half years that David reigned after the passage we read last week. Solomon reigns 40 years. Solomon passes away. So it's really been kind of pretty much 73 years that have passed in the past week. I had, I had strep this week, and I feel like this past week took 73 years. So, you know, but that, that time has passed in our passages for the past week. All right, so that's, that's where we are. Rehoboam has become king, and we are now in 1 Kings chapter 12. So, chapter 12, verse 1. I'm going to kind of go through this kind of slowly, and we'll stop at a couple different places. Verse 1, then Rehoboam went to Shechem for all Israel, had gone to Shechem to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard about it, he stayed in Egypt, where he fled from King Solomon's presence. Jeroboam stayed in Egypt. But they summoned him, and Jeroboam and the whole assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam. Your father made our yoke harsh. You therefore lighten your father's harsh service and heavy yoke he put on us and we will serve you. So if you remember, as we have been talking about kings, last week I went through and I read uh, to y'all some of the passages, uh, or a couple weeks ago, we read some of the passages from uh, Samuel when they decide they want a king. And I said that in that passage from 1 Samuel, we read the word take six times. If you go back and you read that, that chapter, chapter 1 Samuel chapter eight, in that chapter, God tells Samuel, tell this to the people. You don't want a king. Why? Because he's just going to take things from you. And I said to you, he says, take six times. He's going to take your daughters, put them into service. He's going to take your sons. He's going to take your livestock. He's going to take your flocks. He's going to take everything you produce. He's going to take it from you. We get to this passage, and do you know what's going on? The people say, the king has taken so much from us. And God said, I told you so. No, God did not say that. But this is exactly what God told them was going to happen to them. And so they say all of these, just to kind of put it better in our terms, the taxes are too heavy. We have created a great kingdom. We wanted a great kingdom through Solomon. We've built a temple. We've done all of these great things. Could, could you just go easy on us? Could we just lighten the load? So Rehoboam says to them, verse 5, Rehoboam replied, go away for three days and return to me. So the people left. Give me some time to think about it. So Rehoboam does what a wise king should do. Verse 6, then Rehoboam consulted with the elders who had served his father Solomon when he was alive, asking, how do you advise me to respond to this people? They replied, today, if you will be a servant to this people and serve them, 
And if you respond to them by speaking kind words to them, they will be your servants forever. Just so you know, this is the right answer. Just so you know, in this chapter, this is the only verse worth highlighting. It's about to go downhill. So he goes to the elders, and the elders say to him, if you serve the people, they will love you. You will be a great king. Things are going to go really well. Guess what happens? Verse 8 comes. Verse 8. But he rejected the advice of the elders, who had advised him and consulted with the young men who had grown up with him and attended to him. Now, let's pause right there, and we need to have a conversation, okay? Here's the conversation we need to have, and I've been thinking about this all week. When I laid on the sofa all day Wednesday, this is what I was thinking about. I was thinking about, remember the time I preached that sermon and I read a verse in the Bible and then I got fired for it? That was this week. What's about to get weird, just so y'all know, that was a joke. I don't think I'm going to get let go because I didn't write the Bible. I didn't write this verse. Okay? I'm, a, I'm just going to read what the Bible says. Don't read ahead. If you got your Bibles out, just hang on. So let me, let me give you some context. So when I... Y'all ready for this? When I was in Arizona a few weeks ago, I got a text from my friend Grant. Some of y'all know Grant. He's sitting back there. And I got a text from Grant. Oh, and by the way, I'm sorry I didn't ask you for permission for this. Ask Grant, ask Jake, but you're mentioned in this text. So can I read it? Is that okay? All right, okay. Jake gave the okay, so I figure. This is the text I got from Grant. Bumped into Jake, Owen, and some of their friends at the disc golf course. Just happened to hear them talking for a minute. And here's the line I want you to hear. Teenage trash talk is absolutely relentless. Okay? Now, that's not a surprise to anybody. Everybody, if you've ever spent 10 minutes with teenage boys, that none of that text is a surprise to you. Okay? So, Rehoboam meets with the elders and says, let me, what's your advice? And they say, we just read it. If you serve the people, they will love you the rest of their lives. And Rehoboam says, you know what? I'm, you know, somewhere in here, Rehoboam's probably between 15 and 18 years old. It's, it's the age of wisdom for young men. And he says, you know what? What y'all said is great, but I've got some friends and they know how to live life. So verse nine, he could, he, well, sorry, have I read verse eight yet? Let's read verse eight again, sorry, Emily. So he rejects the advice of the elders who had advised them and counseled with who? His disc golf buddies. Who he had grown up with and attended him. Again, remember, I did not write these verses, okay? So he attends, so he goes to him and he's like, hey, what do we do? Verse nine. He asked them, what message do you advise that we send back to this people who said to me, lighten the yoke your father put on us? Are y'all ready for this verse? I've been uncomfortable about it all week. Here we go. Verse 10, this is when I got fired. Y'all remember that? The young man who grown up with him said, this is what you say to the people who said to you, your father made your yoke heavy, but you make it lighter on us. This is what you should tell them. 
Anybody else want to read it for me? Because I don't want to read it. Y'all ready? This is what you should tell them. My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. Now, let's be very honest. Some of you are like, I don't understand the verse. Back in the King James world, this verse made them very uncomfortable. So in 1611, when they translated our Bibles, they added a word that is not in the Hebrew. If we were to read what the Hebrew says in this verse, again, your pastor did not write this verse. The verse says this. This is what you should tell them. My little one is thicker than my father's thigh. Now, if you hear some innuendo in there, these are teenage boys, and they 100% intend the innuendo. Do you hear what the text is saying? If you don't, ask somebody else about it. All right? <laughs> it's just it is what it is. But the problem is, I, I, Lewis Martin, you know, most of y'all know Lewis. Lewis is preaching through the narrative lectionary as well, and I called him this week, and I said, what are you doing about this text? And he said, I'm not going to talk about it. I'm just going to read it and keep moving. I don't feel like that's the right thing to do at this moment either because it sets up where he is in his mind. It sets up the advice that he is getting from his friends. Okay? This is not the wise counsel of the elders. This is the wise counsel of the 17-year-old disc golf boys. All right? You with me? This is what he says. So then it goes on. Let's get after this. Let's get past this verse. All right. Although my father burden you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with barbed whips. Some of your Bibles might read, I'll discipline you with scorpions, which was just a, uh, was just a statement about the type of whip and like the barb of the whip. So this is what he says to him. You thought it was bad with my dad. Just wait. Just wait till you see what I do. So verse 12, let's, we'll, finish, we'll finish the text and then we'll talk about it. So verse 12, so Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam on the third day, as the king ordered, return to me on the third day. Then the king answered the people harshly. He rejected the advice of the elders and had given him, the elders had given him, and spoke to them according to the young men's advice. My father made your yoke. This is, there is some wisdom here. He didn't say the whole quote. We'll give him, give him points for that. My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with barbed whips. The king did not listen to the people because this turn of events came from the Lord to carry out his word, which the Lord had spoken through Aja, the Shilonite of Jer- to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Verse 16, when all of Israel saw that the king had not listened to them, the people answered him, what portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Israel, return to your tents. David, now look after your own house. So Israel went to their tents, but Rehoboam reigned over the Israelites living in the cities of Judah. You'll never guess what what happens next. It doesn't go well. So Rehoboam sends out the the guy in charge of the work groups. He sends them out, and guess what happens? He gets killed. Yes, exactly. They pick up rocks, and they throw them at him, and they kill him. And so Rehoboam has to run away on his chariot. 
This is story number one. We're doing two stories today. This is exciting conclusion of story number one. So we go through the story, and if you keep going on, uh, this is all in the same chapter. We go through that story, and as we uh, kind of walk through it, Rehoboam sends the boss, the boss gets killed, the kingdom is divided, and so the southern kingdom uh, looks to Jeroboam as their leader. So Jeroboam comes, and so Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. From there he went out and built Penile. Verse 26, Jeroboam said to himself, the kingdom might not return to the house, may now return to the house of David. If these people regularly go to offer sacrifices in the Lord's temple in Jerusalem, the heart of these people will return to their Lord, King Rehoboam of Judah. They will kill me and go back to the king of Judah. So what's going on here? Remember, we're divided. The southern kingdom, he's saying, these are the people of David. And if they go back to Jerusalem to worship Yahweh, to worship God, they might realize that they want to follow Rehoboam instead of follow me. I can't let them go back. Okay? So what does he do? So, Verse 20, uh, 28, so the king sought advice. Here we are, seeking advice again. Then he made two golden calves, and he said to the people, going to Jerusalem is too difficult for you, Israel. Here are your gods who brought you out from the land of Egypt. Now, if you recognize that line and what's going on, you should. This is Exodus, when Aaron makes the golden calf, and Aaron uses the exact same words, this is the God that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And we know that one turned out really well, didn't it? So verse 29, he set up one in Bethel, put the other one in Dan. This, <laughs> this is just a great verse. Guess what happened? This led to what? To sin. The people walked in procession before one of the calves all the way to Dan. The... <laughs> These stories, they're a mess. But these stories are stories that remind us of something that is very, very important. And these are stories that I've wrestled with all week and thinking like, where is the redeeming value in these stories? But these stories are stories that remind us and show us where we ended last week. They're stories that show us that when provision protection and power is used inappropriately, this is where it leads. To harshness, to killings, to fleeing, to death, to worshiping idols, this is where that leads. And the question becomes, and this is what I've struggled with all week because you kind of get to this point and writing a sermon, you get to this point and you're like, well, there is no redeeming value in these passages. And I've told you, the, verse 7, today you will be a servant to this people and serve them. And if you respond to them by speaking kind words to them, they will be your servants forever. That's really the only good verse in the whole passage. So what do we do with this? And to me, as I worked on this, what I kept thinking, just kind of taking you through my thought process, I kept coming back to that verse of what does it look like for people who say, you know what, I'm going to reject what the world, what this passage is saying, to make power, provision, protection my idol. 
And what does it mean to truly be people who look to God for power, protection, and provision? What is it to be people that say, this is what life should look like. This is what it looks like to be people who follow after God, not people who are easily tricked by a calf or not people that are easily uh, tricked by power. But to say, I'm going to strive after God. And as I strive after God, he is going to provide provision, protection, and power for me. And in doing that, I kept coming back to a verse or to a story, and it's a story that I I love quite a bit, and it's in Mark's Gospel, chapter 10. My problem with Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, I have no problem, but my, my other problem is this, is that we're about to start Mark's Gospel in January, and I don't want to preach on Mark chapter 10 right now because I want to wait and do that in the spring. But as I kept reading, I had a realization that in Luke's Gospel, that Luke uses the exact same story from Mark chapter 10, but Luke does something interesting with it. If you remember, and we've talked about Mark chapter 10 quite a bit, Mark chapter 10 is one of the predictions where Jesus predicts his death. And in Mark chapter 10, or in that section of Mark, every time Jesus predicts his death, he gives us a little story about what it is to be a disciple right after that. And Mark chapter 10 is the last one, and when he does it, he talks about this is what it is to be a servant. This is what it is to serve. And so Luke takes that story and puts that little story in the middle of two other stories. And I want to look at, look at that with you today because I think that's the answer to Rehoboam and Jeroboam. So let's look at that. Luke chapter 22, when we get to this story, we are at uh, the Last Supper. We jump all the way to the end of the story in Luke. So Luke chapter 22, verse 14 says to us, Make sure I find it. When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he said, this, take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. But look, the hand of the one betraying me is at the table with me. For the Son of Man will go away as it has been determined, but woe to men a woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. Now, just kind of in your, in your minds, kind of highlight that last word there. He mentions it twice, betrayal. So Jesus does this. He, we have the, the story that we know of the Last Supper. And then Jesus kind of changes the subject here. So verse 23, it says, So then, or so, so they began to argue among themselves, which of them it could be who was going to do it. Then a dispute arose among them about who was considered to be the greatest. So they they start this conversation. We've talked about betrayal. So who is it in here that's going to betray? And somehow they go from talking about who is it going to to betray Jesus to who's going to be the greatest. So in in one verse, they make these two arguments. So now they're talking about who's going to be considered the greatest. But he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over to them, lord it over them. 
But those, all those who have authority over them have themselves been called benefactors. Verse 26, it is not like, it is, sorry, it is not to be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever is greatest among you should become like the youngest, and whoever leads like the one serving. For who is greater, the one at the table or the one serving? Isn't it the one at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. So Jesus kind of takes this this whole moment at the table and uses it to teach them of what it looks like to be the one who serves. Now we know the story here. That when Jesus is using some of this language of who is the greatest at the table, we, we have all of this kind of knowledge of what's going on. We know that we're about to end up with Jesus crucified. We know that when Jesus talks about serving, it's more than just giving them food at the table. That Jesus is serving them in a way that they can't even imagine as he gives himself. We know all of this is going on. But Jesus brings them into this to say, let's talk about what it means to be great. Let's talk about what it means to have power. Let's talk about what it means to have provision. Let's talk about what it means to have protection. And so he brings them into this conversation. But then he goes on a little bit farther into verse 28. And he says to them, You are those who stood by me in my trials. I bestow on you a kingdom. A kingdom. I'm giving you a kingdom just as my father has given me a kingdom so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and that you will sit on thrones drudging the 12 tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail and you, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Lord, he told them, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you deny three times that you know me. I want you to kind of hear something. The way Luke is telling us this story. Luke puts bookends on this story for us. The betrayal of Judas and the denial of of Peter. The betrayal of Judas and the denial of Peter. And in the middle of the story, Jesus tells us, this is what it looks like to be a servant. This is what it looks like to be a disciple. And I think sometimes when we, we get to these stories, we miss the beauty of what the authors are reminding us and telling us. That we can look at the story and we're like, oh, poor Judas. Or we look at the story and like, oh, Peter, you should have known better. And I think one of the things Luke wants us to hear in this story is that yes, Judas betrayed Jesus. Yes, Peter denied Jesus. But sometimes when we're caught up in power, provision, protection, that we also betray who Jesus is. That we also deny what Jesus has done for us. 
And I think Luke puts this little story in the middle of this to remind us of who we are as God's people. That power in the kingdom of God is something that is countercultural. That power in the kingdom of God is not about, about domination. But we look to Jesus as the pattern. The pattern of not just how we live our lives, but the pattern of what it means to serve. That we can talk about Jesus as the incarnation of God, but Jesus is also the incarnation of what it is to be a servant. To be one that gives himself. To be one that lives for other people. As I was kind of pulling this sermon together, and I know I've thrown a whole lot of scripture at y'all today. But as I was trying to kind of pull all of this together and to get it down into a thought, somehow I, I ended up in, in 1 Thessalonians, and I'll tell you how I ended up there. This, this isn't up on the, the board because I added it last minute. But in 1 Thessalonians, Paul is writing to a church in Thessalonica and talking about the ministry that they have done there. And as he's writing to them, telling them about the ministry that they've done there, he begins to tell them about some of the things they've done. And this language, this is what I want you to hear, because the way that he says this is incredible. He says to them, telling them about this ministry and what he has seen in the church, he says, for, them, uh, for they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you. And he says, how you turned to God from idols. How you turned to God from idols to do what? 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, to serve the living and true God and to wait for the Son from heaven who he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. But then Paul goes on and says, let me, let me remind, to you, remind you what ministry looked like there in Thessalonica. So he begins to tell them what that ministry looks like. So in chapter 2, if you go on down to verse 5, he begins to tell them. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 5, he says for them, for we never use, this is what my ministry looked like with you. This is what Paul's telling them. For we never use flattering speech, as you know, or had greedy motives. God is our witness. We didn't seek glory from people, either from you or from others. Although we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles, instead we were gentle among you as a nurse nurtures, or as literally there, as a nursing mother nurses her own children. So what is Paul saying here? Paul is saying to them, when I came to you, I came to you as a minister and I had the opportunity to show power. I had the opportunity to tell you, hey, I don't know if y'all know this, my name's Paul, I'm a pretty big deal. But instead, I came to you in love. I came to you in the same love that when a mother holds her baby, as a mother feeds her baby, that is the love that I came to you with. I could have come to you in power, but I came to you in that love. So verse eight, he goes on to say this to him, we cared for you so much that we were pleased to share with you not only, and here it is, to share with you not only the gospel of God, but everything we had, our, our own lives. 
Guys, this is where I've landed this week from, from Rehoboam and Jeroboam and thinking through what, where is the redemption in this passage? That when we look at our lives and we start to say, what is between me and God? What, what do I put between me and God? And how do I live a life where I can keep the things that are between me and God, where I can get rid of those things? How do I live a life where it's just me and God? How do I live a life that I can be free of idols? And I think Paul would say to us, I'll tell you how to do it. You do it through living a life. A life that is surrounded by the gospel, but a life where you're falling in love with the people around you. where you're falling in love with the people around you and finding ways to serve them. This is the example that Christ gets, gives us. This is the example that we see throughout the Bible. From Jesus to Paul to say to us, a life that is free from idolatry is a life that says, here it is. I'm, I'm in love with you. I'm in love with the gospel of God and I want to be able to serve you, to love you. If you look there in that verse, uh, was it verse eight? Emily, could you put that back up there real quick? We cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our, our, our own selves. But then he says this, why? Because you had become dear to us. You had become our beloved I put up there the transliteration of the Greek word because I think most of you, if you've been around the church very long, you'll recognize a little word in there. Do y'all see it? What's the word? Agape. What's, what's, what is agape? Love. It's, it's God's love. Because when I served you, I saw in you God's love. When I served you, you showed me who God was. And the life that we live and a life that walks away from idolatry is a life that says, I, I want to live a life of serving other people and in doing so, not only do I get to show them God's love, not only do I get to give them my life, but I also get to see God in them. I also get to see how God works in their lives. I get to see a little piece of what God is doing in their lives. And walking and living and serving and loving, we get to see how God works. And this is the lives we are called to live. Not a life of Rehoboam, not a life of Jeroboam, but a life that Christ shows us, this is what life looks like. I gave you the gospel, and I gave you myself, and in return, I got to see God in you. I got to experience God's love you. Today, as we close and as we sing, my hope is that we take a moment to realize that God has called us to much more, much more than just being people that are looking to ourselves or looking to other people for power, protection, provision, but people that are looking to God for those things. Paul reminds us in Thessalonians, I I still had to eat, I still had to do all these things, but I knew God was going to provide those things. 
And because I knew God was going to do that, I had the opportunity to love. I had the opportunity to share with you because I knew God was going to be present. I knew God was going to do those things. Today, as we close, uh, we will close as we have been closing. I'm gonna ask uh, Randy if he would come down here, just if anyone wants, anyone wants to come and pray uh, with the pastor, that Randy would be down here and would love to be able to pray with you. That if you'd like to be anointed today for any reason, uh, I'll be right down at this altar, would love to be able to anoint you, whether it's physical, emotional, spiritual, um, just to have the opportunity to pray with you. But for some of us, we might just need to find a place and to say, I've been caught up in these other things. God, whatever it is that's standing in the way between you and me, Lord, I, I want, as I said last week, I wanna just leave that at the altar. Lord, whatever it is that, that captures me, that isn't a part of you, Lord, it's yours. Let me leave it at this altar and walk away from it. Because I wanna be a person they can look at the people around me and say, I've given you everything I have. I only have two things, it's the gospel and myself. And in doing so, I got to see God in you. It sounds like a great life. Let us stand.